Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Fanatical Futurists. In this episode, we'll be looking at the future of work and talent. Will there be any jobs left for humans once the robots take over? How big businesses are preparing their workforce for the future? And why the Chinese government have put an AI-powered foreign minister in charge? Plus much more, but firstly, we're joined once more by Matthew Griffin, The Fanatical Futurist. Matthew, a crazy time in the world since we last spoke. How's it all been going? Absolutely. That's it. So, again, basically been travelling around the world. We've been seeing lots of really... I was going to say influential people, which I kind of have. That's it, but interesting people. I would like to think it in that sort of term. And uh, we've been having conversations basically about just about every single topic under the sun. Uh, one of which we're going to sort of be talking about today, which seems to be increasingly sort of a, a popular topic of conversation, which is the future of work, as well as work, learning and development and all kinds of other bits, bits and bobs. But uh, yeah, that's it. I'm quite happy to get my feet back in one place and uh, be, be sitting in one place for a change. Well, Matthew, today we're obviously looking at the future of the workforce and the future of work. And my first question really is, who's having the bigger impact in shaping that future currently? Is it the governments or is it the private sector? Is it entrepreneurs and the innovators of our time? If you want to build the future, not necessarily lead it or dominate it, but some governments actually do ask that sort of follow-up question. Same with multinationals. You know, uh, if we want to sort of build the future, then, you know, what, you know, who's the most effective at doing it? Yeah, and you can see governments sort of want me to say, well, I think governments are the most effective at helping build the future. Um, but increasingly, I typically answer by saying that private private organisations are the best, are often the best place to help build the future because when you actually have a look at things like Elon Musk, Elon Musk basically increase, you know, the development of his electric vehicles accelerated the electric vehicle revolution. You know, would a government have done that? When you have a look at things like Starlink, basically where we are now connecting the other three and a half billion people on the planet, would a government have done that? No. Um, you know, when we have a look at the energy transition, would a government have done that? You know, now you can say yes, you can say no. But if you say yes, then I'll say, well, why didn't they do it before? Um, you know, when we have a look at the move to autonomous transportation, you know, that's done by Google. Uh, as well as others now, but, you know, Google kind of kick-started that. It wasn't a government. Um, you know, the transition basically to renewable energy and all that kind of stuff, you know, wasn't a government again. When you actually have a look at governments, you know, there's this sort of increasing conversation that people are having with me saying, are governments ineffective? You know, a lot of the surveys, basically, a lot of the surveys seem to demonstrate that a lot of the younger generations, especially, as well as increasingly the elderly generations, basically believe that governments are increasingly sort of polarized, ineffective, basically, and fragile, which is actually a sort of trend that comes out of misinformation, disinformation, Russian psyops, basically, and all that kind of stuff. That's, again, different conversations, but, you know. Matthew, you're an incredibly respected futurist around the world. You work with global governments. But in the UK, for example, currently, how involved would a futurist or a specialist be involved in the planning of the future day to day? Not very. Okay. Uh, so I do I do a, a fair amount of work with BEIS. So this is where, you know, so BEIS typically looks at uh, looks at the amount of money that they need to set aside basically for UK innovation activities. And typically they focus on things like artificial intelligence and robotics. I also do work basically with the Department of International Trade. Uh, where the Department of International Trade as a body obviously sort of go out around the world and then try to try to make the UK an attractive place for other organisations to come and set up shop, whether that's large organisations or small organisations. And actually, well, yeah, when you have a look at those two bodies, both BEIS basically, as well as DIT, um, they actually have they actually have a very good understanding of technology, but sort of generally within a fairly narrow frame. I mean, you know, my frame is just 
wide you know i'm not saying i'm fat but uh my frame you know my frame of reference basically for this stuff is really wide so i follow about 650 exponential technologies which people can go and have a look at 300 of them in the codexes uh you know so that's that but um when we start having a look at things like technological you know advice around technologies this is where again government's really really difficult to actually work with so i was working with theresa may back in the day based on things like the future of work you know, and you can be working with a government minister or you can be working with a president or a prime minister. And you say, right, you know, when we have a look at the future, we think the future will look like this because we're seeing these signals emerging and, you know, we can quantify it in a particular way and we can go and prod and poke the bear. Um, but that prime minister can say, you know what, I'm, abs I'm absolutely bought into that vision. And I think that we need to, for example, transform UK education. Uh, which is sort of one of my passions for a bunch of different reasons. And uh, you go, great, you know, and you sit there basically as a consultant and as advisor and as as an advisor to government, you're sitting there going, fantastic. You know, I've got I've got a sponsor basically within government who is empowered to do things and they're going to get things moving. You know, and you, and you, you can sit there really smug uh, going, great. Uh, and then two weeks later, they're out. You know, and then you've got to try to get an audience basically with the next one. You're like with Boris yeah. and you go to Boris and go, you know, future's over here. And he goes, well, yes, I see that. But I've got a slightly different view. Plus, I'm fighting a bunch of fires. Basically, So, you know, the things that Theresa May did, basically, I'm going to put on the bonfire or I'm just going to put on the shelf, you know, and then you get another one coming. And then but eventually Boris, for example, you know, will come around and sort of go, right, you know, we're going to create we're going to turn the UK into this giant tech hub, which actually I did think was a sort of good idea of his. And he did start doing that basically within London, um, which is an old story. Um, but you sort of get this traction again. And then, you know, you go, right, we're now going to get something moving. Fantastic. And then he's out, you know. Mm -hmm. So when I'm having a look at where I spend my time and energy, I know that a lot of a lot of sort of advisors and consultants go, you know, yes, we're dealing with governments and oh, aren't, isn't it amazing and special? That's it. But frankly, it's a great way to wind you up. Governments aren't necessarily that effective unless they're autocratic. Um, and, you know, you find yourself one minute dealing with one set of stakeholders who think everything's fantastic and everything you're saying is great. And, you know, let's go off and do that. And then the next minute you're dealing with a completely different set of stakeholders who think something completely different. Well, that's why there's no progress ever, because yeah. somebody says in 30 years we'll have this policy come in or we'll hit this target in 20 years. But they're obviously not going to be in power within a year, let alone 10. So it's, well, not, it. yeah, it's no innovation whatsoever. But I mean, the problem is also that equally more and more so nowadays, especially in Western Europe, the government, the, the leaders, they're all after self-worth and self-promotion more than they are the interests of their own country and their people. Um, is there a way that in the future computers could actually look at the issues affecting a country and we could be ruled by computers or tech? Uh, so Elon Musk kind of thinks so. Um, and actually over in China, they have actually developed an art and they did this a couple of years ago. They developed an artificial intelligence based foreign minister <laughs> and this AI foreign minister, which is actually a minister uh, in the CCP is there primarily or was there primarily to help them uh, negotiate better belt and belt better belt and road um, uh, sort of outcomes. So, for example, this artificial intelligence would say, right, OK, you're sitting down basically with the president of Nigeria, for example. Um, you know, this is where I think you're best negotiating, you know, aim here, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. over here. 
in order to sort of get to a yes you know from the nigerian president that's amazing um so we have actually started seeing the rise of artificial intelligence politicians that are actually actively being deployed and used the us has reportedly got a couple that's it but as much as i try to dig those out i say i can never ever find them but when you start having a look through some of the uh, the white house documents and, and papers and everything else um there is this general illusion to yes we know that china has created an artificial intelligence foreign minister we have as well and it's like okay well where is it you know it's like well we've done it it's like fine where is it you know yeah. it's like the smoke's there but can't find the actual fire but you know elon musk sort of said uh, famously went on record saying that he thinks that in the future artificial intelligence basically will become a an immortal dictator now we've seen different sort of syst- autonomous uh, systems coming through with for example in russia um russia it's fairly well believed that uh, Russia has something called the dead hand system. So the AI dead hand system listens for signals intelligence. And if it doesn't hear the chatter of the high command, if it doesn't hear particular radio f- or if it can't detect di- different radio frequencies, it'll just launch all of uh, Russia's nukes. Um, but um, which is fun. Um, yeah. or not. Um, we're not being flippant. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's when you have a look at the use of artificial intelligence, basically within government, um, Meta, as well as Google, a little while ago, created artificial intelligences that were given the task of, in one case, redistributing wealth. And I think in that case, that was Google's artificial intelligence. It was generally estimated that it was better at redistributing wealth than the American government. Uh, and then Meta's, uh, which is this is a this is a funny one. Um, it's ironic. Uh, that's why it's funny. Um, Meta's artificial intelligence was deemed with trying to protect and promote democracy, and it did a better job than the politicians. <laughs> uh, so, so Facebook slash Meta's artificial intelligence did a better job of promoting democracy than the American government. But the AI was owned by a company that the American government is increasingly referring to as a virtual nation, uh, because essentially Facebook is a virtual nation of what, 2 billion, 2.3 billion people. Um, that they see as being used as a tool, as a subversive tool to undermine democracy. So go and figure out that ironic twist of the wheel. Well, I mean, 2.9 billion people, a lot of them working. And so if you were going to try and predict what they would be doing in the next 10, 20 years, what is the future of work when you look at this uh, in a wider realm? Uh, so, well, when we have a look at the future of work, so there's a there's a lot to unpack, basically, when we talk about the future of work. And, you know, recently I was sitting with the Saudi Arabian government, as well as 200 of the world's top uh, banking CEOs. So, for example, we had the CEO, basically, of Citi. We had the CEO, basically, of HSBC and all that kind of stuff. Some were regional CEOs, some were global and so on and so forth. And uh, what we were doing is we were talking about the future of talent and hiring, uh, but we're also talking about the future of work. And I've done exactly the same, basically, with government, actually, ironically, governments (laughs) Uh, like Bahrain, the UK government, basically, as well as Discover and a whole variety of different organisations. So when we start talking about the future of work and, you know, people can sort of see some of these presentations and keynotes actually on the YouTube channel. um, There is a lot to unpack. Uh, So I think I'm sort of going to start here. 
Um, when we have a look at the future of work, if you go and pick up any traditional newspaper, you know, or whether you'll go and read any traditional news website, um, it will generally say artificial intelligence is here uh, and artificial intelligence is going to take your job. OK. Um, and, you know, when you have a look at studies from the likes of McKinsey, but as well as sort of Oxford University, um, it's no secret that those particular academics and those establishments believe that up to 50 percent of all of today's jobs are either fully automatable or partially automatable. When you have a look at the financial services space, for example, the companies like Barclays and HSBC, according to their reports, also believe that by 2030, typically 50 to 60 percent of jobs in the financial services sector could be automated. So this includes things like equity traders, basically, which are already being automated, stock traders, you know, IPO experts, you know, that kind of stuff, uh, wealth advisors, you know, go, you know, so on and so forth, customer service clerks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the reason why I'm sort of saying this is if you go and pick up any traditional sort of, you know, newspaper, basically they say artificial intelligence is coming to get your job. Whether you are a blue collar worker, you know, and you're going to have your job taken by a more sophisticated robot and an artificial intelligence, or whether you're a white collar worker like a claims adjuster, for example, in an insurance organization, you're going to have your job taken there. Um, but there are kind of, yeah, when we start having a look at A, things that begin with A, um, there's three kind of A's that we need to actually focus on when we're looking at the future of work. So firstly, we've got automation. Now, when we think about automation, automation is, is where we traditionally use things like robotic process automation tools in a relatively dumb way to automate individual tasks and jobs. So for example, if you submit your expense form and it's below 50 pounds, then the, then the RPA system will automatically approve it without Brian, your manager, having to bother even looking at it. So we have dumb automation. Um, then we have RPA basically with machine learning, which takes dumb automation and makes it slightly more intelligent, but not very much because it's an if this, if this happens, then do that system still. The second day that we have is autonomous. Now, autonomous systems are very different to automated systems. Automated systems are typically dumb. If this, then that. Autonomous systems, which are generally based on neural artificial intelligence, neural network systems, as well as other bits and bobs, machine learning, that sort of stuff, are typically much more sophisticated. And they are if the you know what if so for example an autonomous system if you think about a self-driving car a self-driving car is going to replace a professional driver but it's not dumb robotic process automation that self-driving car has to take in a huge amount of information process it and then based on that information make a decision on what to do next and it could be turn left, turn right, run over the pedestrian, avoid the dog, you know, whatever it's up to. So autonomous systems are becoming increasingly prevalent within business because they're also increasingly being used in decision making. 
So autonomous decision-making systems are already starting to find their ways onto the boards of, again, financial services organizations, especially out of Hong Kong, which is a conversation that we can have. Um, the third kind of A, or A number three, is augmented. Now, this is where things really get interesting, because if I automate your job, you're replaced. I can generally replace your job basically with an autonomous system, depending what your job actually is, you know, and we can even replace some scientists with autonomous systems, for example. But when we have a look at augmentation, this is where we the starting we we work from this starting point. So how do we tag team humans with technology? so that humans and the act of work become more productive, more efficient, and generate better results, whatever those results are. So uh, last week, basically, I was with, I was with Discover uh, down in Valencia, basically, and we were having this sort of conversation. Now, when we have a look at, auto, when we have a look at augmenting humans, there's something called the centaur principle. Now, this was originally conceived of by Gary Kasparov, the chess grandmaster that got beaten by IBM's Deep Blue back in the sort of 80s. Mm -hmm. Recently, we also saw the Go champion, the South Korean Go champion, being beaten by artificial intelligence. And I think these two examples actually serve as really good examples of how we can best describe the impact that augmenting people using technology, whether it's collaboratively or actually, can really start changing how we work. So in the Go Champions case, he was interviewed by the media after he, after he was comprehensively beaten by an artificial intelligence. And so the press said, so you just got comprehensively beaten by an artificial intelligence and you are the world's expert you're the world's champion at go there is no human that is better than you at the game of go you are the pinnacle and yet you got thrashed taken to town by ai you know how do you feel and he said well actually i feel really bad and actually he 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 was basically set on resigning and uh quitting the game because yeah. he said that artificial intelligence could not be beaten three months later those same reporters went back to him and they also did this with Gary Kasparov and the two actually agreed. And so they said, so, you know, it's been three months since you got thrashed by artificial intelligence in your chosen field. And, uh, you know, how do you feel? And he actually said, well, actually, I, I actually feel really good about it. And I said, well, how do you, what do you mean you feel really good about it? You know, three months ago, basically, you, you're basically quitting. And he said it was, you know, AI could never be beaten, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, no, you know, there was, and some people know this story, but he said, you know, there was this particular move, move 37. Every thought, everyone thought that the artificial intelligence had made a massive mistake, made a massive cock up. Um, but it actually proved to be the most insightful move of, of the entire game. And he said, it was at that point when actually, when I was reflecting on it, Artificial intelligence taught me a new strategy. 
it taught me how to be an even better game player. And so this is the thing, you know, when we start talking about what happens when you when you combine the best of human skills and experience with the best of, say, technology, but generally AI, this is where, you know, increasingly you kind of become superhuman. Now, an everyday example of this benefit is Google. You know, if I asked you any, if I asked you any question, you could probably answer it within a couple of seconds because you can Google it. Yeah. If I said, you know, what's the boiling point of helium? Yeah, you haven't remembered that, but you Google it and two seconds later, you're going, it's this. Yeah. So Google, and this is where ironically automation, you know, the actual automation, you know, the sort of fairly dumb automation, but also the autonomous automation can actually be really good for people but I'll put a caveat in for this reason. So if we develop artificial intelligence-based systems that automate lawyers, then for the lawyers that that artificial intelligence or that new system has replaced, that's really bad because they're being handed their P45s. And we are actually seeing some law firms use artificial intelligence to replace their paralegals. However, if I now have an artificial intelligence that understands bankruptcy law, and I can put a nice, shiny behavioral interface on the top of it that lets people talk to that artificial intelligence, you now have the democratization of skills because I'm not a lawyer. But as we start looking at things like conversational artificial intelligence, cognitive artificial intelligence with the likes of IBM Watson, I can now ask that artificial intelligence and say, so I've got to put together an NDA, or I've got to review this contract. You know, can you tell me all of the, can you tell me everything that I need to know about the termination clauses? And the AI will come back and say, well, you know, these are the clauses that you need to be aware of. And then as AI progresses, we can then start discussing and debating things with it. And I say, well, you know my business, you know my interests and you know my objectives. You know, how can I modify that particular clause so that it favors me and not the third party I'm trying to transact with? So when you automate particular jobs and tasks, and you put a conversational a conversational interface over the top of it, suddenly we can start talking to things. Another example is Microsoft DeepCoder. How many of you can code? Some, but probably not many. What happens to your own human potential when you can talk to an artificial intelligence and say, DeepCoder, build me an application, a software application that looks like Microsoft Word? DeepCoder will go off to GitHub, Stack Overflow, collect all the information and the code that it needs, bring it back, compile it, and say, is this the software application you wanted me to build? And then you say, well, I would like it in green. I would like it to do this, that, and everything else. So, you know, when we have a look at things like Wix with websites, do you need, you know, the fact that we've all put an automated layer over the top of HTML, CCS, and Java code, and everything else. 
do you now need to know how to code in order to make a website for your one-man band business? It's the same with Canva. I mean, Canva's put out of work millions of designers in every yeah. single industry because anyone can do it in a second. Well, that's it, exactly. Now, you know, and then when we look at synthetic content, so neat segue, when we look at synthetic content, we're already getting to the point where with what we call transformers, we can convert one kind of input to another one. So, for example, and I'm showing this off to Dentsu next week. Uh, was it next week? Week after next. Uh, again, um, even, yeah, this is where, you know, I can actually say to a computer, computer, I would like you to draw me a landscape uh, of the Pyrenees and the computer system will generate an image of it. Or I can type, you know, if we have a look at some of these text to video converters, you know, I've, I've been showing these off for like five years, you know, and everyone in the mainstream media is now catching me up, which is why when I'm when when I sort of think about, you know, what's it to be? What is it to be a futurist? Futurists talk about the things that are coming next, you know, and when those things that come when those things eventually emerge, no one wants to talk to the futurist because they want to talk to the people who are actually doing it. Yeah, um, so I've been talking about synthetic content basically for years. I mean, even podcasts, you know, three years ago, we had an artificial intelligence create a procedural podcast. Mm. And then recently we used um, synthetic audio to create, to recreate a Joe Rogan and Steve Jobs uh, podcast that never exists. It just doesn't exist, but never <laughs> existed because they never had that conversation. When we start thinking, so collectively, I think we need to get out of this funk of thinking that, yeah, automation is bad. Automation is bad for the people who are being automated. But for the rest of us, all of a sudden, we have access to new skills that boost our own human potential. So now imagine that you, as a solo entrepreneur, you no longer need to hire a lawyer. You no longer need to hire a creative marketer because I can get an artificial intelligence to put my contracts together for me. I can get an artificial intelligence basically to put together basically my marketing brief, like we saw with Lexus. So Lexus had IBM Watson creating the script for their award-winning adverts, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, so what happens to the power of the individual when you now have access to all of those skills, all of those things that you are historically rubbish at, but you can now do or build or yeah. deliver to an expert level or save money on or be, you know you are empowered but but the scary thing yeah. is where do you draw a line because these yeah. computers this tech is so efficient that you know obviously we saw the incredible reaction to that mini budget going back to that quickly just because the yeah. markets were spooked by it but yeah. what happens if the markets then start getting run by tech because then surely the whole neutrality the whole reason economies exist is due to human error as much as it is human genius yeah. And without human error, then where is their money to be made if all the computers are competing oh. with each other? Uh, well, so funnily enough, we actually already have a lot of computers competing with each other. Basically, so for example, in the financial services industry, we've got this. We have um, there's a category of investors called quantitative investors. They're quants for short. Um, these are essentially investors that use artificial intelligence, but use it as their primary way to dive through information and then invest as opposed to some of the other investors basically who are sort of a little bit more human centric or human first as opposed to AI first. Um, so when you actually have a look at quantitative traders, we've already seen examples of what happens basically when 
uh, these quantitative traders act on incorrect news. You know, so a few years ago, Bloomberg accidentally published that Facebook at that time had actually made a loss. And all these quantitative traders, basically these AIs, which are plugged into uh, things like you know, big data networks, but Twitter sentiment, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, saw basically that Bloomberg said Facebook's made a loss and instantly, within milliseconds, sold the stock. And Facebook's stock plummeted by $32 billion in the space of minutes. And when Bloomberg then published a redaction saying we actually meant they made a profit, not a loss, sorry, you know, our bad, the stocks went back up. So, you know, when you have a look at sort of, you know, quite a lot of the stock exchanges around the world, you know, they are already fearful, basically, that, you know, if these artificial intelligences sort of get hacked, get buggy, um, get exposed to information that they just don't know what to do with, you know, bear in mind the pandemic, yeah, a lot of the quantitative traders sort of suffered in the early days, basically, of the pandemic, because these AIs didn't know what was going to happen to the markets, because there was no information to base any of this on, because none of these AIs and none of, you know, none of these traders had actually gone through a pandemic where everything shut. You know, there was no artificial intelligence model for, okay, the entire economy is shutting down. Where do you invest? You know, it was like, I haven't got that data. I haven't generated the model. I haven't thought of the pattern yet. You know, I haven't figured out where to invest. Um, Yeah. So investing in the absence of data proved really, really hard for these quants. When you're sat down with global leaders, Theresa May, for example, and you're saying, you know, your futurist uh, predictions on what's going to happen and what probably I'm guessing you then go what they should be investing their time and their resources, what they should be looking at, trying to get hold of and build. Um, Do they ever say like, what happens to the human beings in all this in terms of in 10 years time, when tech is ruling everything? What does a nine to five for your average person who's been displaced from a job look like? And how do they make money? So they do. And actually, the the one thing that worried me, and it, it was worrying me seven years ago when I saw organizations like IBM, you know, sort of rolling 50,000 people out of the organization because cloud started disrupting the company, um, you know, and they weren't alone. You know, we saw the like, same with a whole variety of different tech companies that were making huge rounds of layoffs, basically, because they were being, dis- you know, being disrupted. Um, this is sort of where actually I say to governments, but I also say to, you know, I also say to regular companies, you know, on the one hand, basically, as humans, we always describe ourselves as the most complex, special and adaptable beings in the entire known universe. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the human mind basically is supposed to be the most complex and best thing in the entire known universe. But despite the fact that we say that we are the most special beings in the entire known universe, when it comes to jobs, if you're selling cars today, we have a society that is built around the fact and the predilection that the only thing that you'll be able to do in 20 years time is sell those cars, right? You know, when people become accountants out of university, we generally accept they will retire as an accountant. When people go into sales after university or college, we generally accept they will be in sales, basically by the age of 65. There might be a sales director or whatever it happens to be, but they'll still be in sales. Finance, it's the same. Investors, it's the same. You know, it's exactly, you know, auditors, the same. Um, So we, so 
when we start saying, okay, so technology is going to replace lots and lots of different jobs in different ways, you know, and when governments say, you know, we're facing an, I mean, like the German government, you know, we're facing a realistic possibility that 50% of our workforce is going to be made redundant. Um, you know, how the heck do we cope with that? I've, yeah, and it took me a little bit of time to figure it out. But sort of go, can't you retrain people? You know, if you have, if you were an accountant and you're made redundant by whatever AI and you can't get another job, can't you retrain the accountant to be a data scientist? You know, people sort of go, well, you know, we sort of can. And it's like, okay, so this isn't a problem about what do we do with all the people who are made redundant? Do we roll out universal basic income and everything else? This is a fundamentally how do we retrain sections of the workforce whose, whose jobs have been made redundant by different technologies and different advancements? Now, there's this 10,000-hour rule. It was always generally believed that if you wanted to become an expert in a particular field, you'd have to train at it for over 10,000 hours. But I can give you the basics of data, data science. I can teach you about data science 101 um, within the space of a, a couple of hours. You know, give me 20 hours, basically, and we can sort of give you a good grounding in, you know, how to be a data scientist. And then you go through two or one, two or one, three or one. Mm -hmm. um, so the answer is actually retraining, but it's a, it's a lot more than that. So firstly, and this is when I was in Saudi Arabia, this is the exact conversation I had basically with the COO of HSBC. Um, they were on stage basically at the time and they're saying, you know, the biggest problem that we have basically is HSBC, as well as other banks basically that were in the room, is, uh, you know, we simply cannot get enough people uh, to do things like data science, software development, DevOps, you know, that kind of stuff, um, cybersecurity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. OK, so here we go. You know, from an educational standpoint, you know, <laughs> When I said to these organizations, I said, OK, so when you look forward five to 10 years, you know, what jobs are you going to need? You know, what people or what jobs basically, are you going to need to fulfill the need of your company, HSBC, in five years time? You know, and this is where, you know, we look at the future of finance and we have those conversations. But um we still, in five years' time, for example, we still think, okay, well, we'll probably need data scientists, right? And I said to the audience at the time, I said, we will need data scientists in the next five years. But as we see the evolution of computing, we will need quantum data scientists because the way that you use, the way that you would uh, do data science work on a quantum computer is different typically to how you would do it on a using a traditional artificial intelligence and a traditional computing sort of platform. So today you have a traditional data science scientist, but in five years time, you need a quantum data scientist and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said to him, said, most of you know this because we've been having conversations about quantum computing during the morning. Um, and especially how quantum computers will benefit the financial services industry when we talk about things like risk calculations, matrix calculations, and everything else. But how many of you, from an HR and training and development perspective, an L and a learning and development perspective, an L and D perspective, how many of you have said so? Today we've got loads of data scientists. 
Come 2027, it's likely we will need quantum data scientists. How many of you have already started giving your existing data scientist teams the skills that they need or will need in five years' time? And you know what the answer is, is none. Yeah. So I said, so today we have the ability to, at a rough level, see what the jobs of the future look like. But none of you are actually taking the steps to ensure that the teams that you have today can transition to those new future jobs. And they were like, yeah. So I said, so if we sit here in 2027, you're all going to be complaining that you can't find enough quantum data scientists, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we sort of went down a big laundry list of future jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, oh, yeah. And one of the stories I like telling basically is Accenture. So Accenture, a little while ago, um, kind of put this, this program in place where they said, right, you're in this job today, you know, and we think that technology is going to make that, is going to automate that job. Um, however, we think these are the jobs of the future. So software development, DevOps, data science, AI, you know, uh, transformation, project managers, you know, all that kind of stuff and bits and bobs. Um, so what we can, what we would like to do is we would like to give you the opportunity to retrain with mentors. And so when your job is made redundant here, you can just seamlessly transition into this new job over here. And when the time came, Accenture made 17,000 positions redundant without making a single person redundant. So when we talk about the fear of being made redundant, on the one hand, it's instinctual because none of us want to lose our our wages. Of course. But on the other hand, as the most special beings in the entire known universe, we can learn new tricks, but we need the right environment we need mentors, we need companies basically that will help take us from this thing that's no longer relevant, this job that's no longer relevant or needed to be done by a human to this new job over here that actually adds value to the organization. And the way that we can't do that is, in summary, you identify, you identify your future company state so the markets that you want to go after in the future say the next five years you then identify the jobs and tasks that need to be done for you as an organization to be able to go and make money in that new market you know sell stuff support stuff you know all the things that you do today um what we then do is once you understand what the what the jobs and tasks of the future to be done are you create skill matrices hard and soft skills so you say right we need these hard skills and we need these soft skills for people in these roles you then identify whether you have those skills in-house already are these existing skills or are they net new skills you know for example if you look at you know someone programming a biological computer that's a net new skill Where do you go to learn that skill? So you go outside the organization, find partners and people who can help you with that. Um, And once you've built these competency matrices, you then go to the people that are going to be made redundant 
and I have a UK example, which I like as well, uh, go to the people who are being made redundant, who will eventually be made redundant and give them the opportunity to retrain in some of these new job areas. And then because you've seen these new jobs early, you've got up to five years to transition the bulk of your staff. Now, with Ocado, Ocado knows basically that their warehouses soon are going to be fully automated and they know that their packing staff basically will end up being made redundant. But with Ocado, they're offering their packing staff the opportunity to become robot maintenance engineers. Awesome. So, so do we, so, and this sort of, this is sort of where I come to. What's the problem that you're trying to solve? Do you, are you trying to solve the problem of what do you do with when 50% of your population doesn't have a job? In which case, the answer is universal basic income, and that's a conversation. Or are you trying to make your population resilient to redundancy? In which case, it's retraining. In which case, it's a, how do you take someone from this job to this job? What's the A to Z? Well, Matthew, you've been absolutely incredible. Just quickly tell us what you're up to over the next week or so. I know you're off to get some uh, some terrifying injections. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, I've already had them. So I've had yellow fever this morning. That's it, which um, that's been fun. So sort of while, we've, yeah, while we've been doing the podcast, uh, but, you know, I'm paracetamoled up and all that kind of stuff. So uh, next week I'm off to Ghana, basically, actually with uh, the government and uh, Standard Chartered, where we're going to be having conversations about the future of African fintech uh, with about 800 sort of fintechs and leaders and everything else. Um, but then after that, basically, we're doing quite a lot of sessions, basically, with ABB, so uh, Future Robotics. So that's actually kind of a, a pure future play there, basically, with ABB. Uh, and then after that, I'm all I'm all over the world, literally. So we're talking about the future of Saudi Arabia. So, you know, what the future of the kingdom looks like, uh, but also having lots of conversations with the Middle Eastern governments, basically, about the future of pretty much everything. Um, again, actually, so there's there's one coming up in about two weeks time, basically, with uh, the UAE government where we're talking about the future of work. So actually, maybe I'll just take some uh, hints, basically, from this particular podcast. Maybe just play them the podcast. Yeah, I'll just go play. That's it. And I'll be sitting on a beach. (laughs) Matthew, absolutely amazing to speak to you. Fascinating as always. And I look forward to doing it all again very soon. Yeah, take it easy. Cheers, Cheers, Freddie. Bye.